0: So Titus chapter 3 will begin at verse 1. This is God's holy word. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time... We too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, as I mentioned here, we've come to the last, the fifth of the so-called faithful sayings in the pastoral epistles. Boys and girls, again, how often doesn't it happen? There's one for each finger on one of your hands. I wonder if you can remember all five of the faithful sayings. You can remember what they're about or where they're found in the Bible. If you just even, uh, for this afternoon, just remember the first one. Do you remember the first one? It was in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, and it was a beautiful summary, wasn't it, of the good news of the gospel. It's where we began several months ago. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, wrote the Apostle Paul. And now as we've come to the fifth faithful saying, it's another gospel summary kind of saying. It proclaims clearly the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. But it does so in so much more detail. This passage in Titus provides for us a greater explanation of what is involved when a person is actually saved. These verses are really an encyclopedia of theology. There's almost a complete systematic theology that you can work out of these verses. It doesn't have the doctrine of creation explicitly in it, but it begins with a doctrine of sin, humanity, and inability and depravity and works on through God's plan of salvation and application of salvation all the way to the doctrine of last things or end times when it speaks about the hope of eternal life. It's all there. These are verses that really deserve uh, long and careful study and meditation and prayer by every Christian because it is such a beautiful picture of the blessing of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. We see three things in the main here. We we see a people who need to be saved. As we're thinking about salvation, that's the first thing that's mentioned, a people who need to be saved. And then, wonderful description of the God who saves and how he does that. And last, there is a call for people uh, to live appropriately in light of being saved. So a people who need to be saved, a God who saves, and the life lived by someone who is saved. Those three things. And uh, if you think about those three things, and you are familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, it's another one of those places in the Bible where guilt, grace, and gratitude are just right there. Those are the categories. The guilt of sin, the grace of God and salvation, and the life of gratitude lived in response to God's mercy. Well, we begin there with the people who need to be saved. In verse 3, Paul describes our great need as sinners. He writes, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, Deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Not a very good way to build up people's self esteem. People could read those words and say, Paul, what are you saying here? What a description! Any one of those things on their own would be enough, but all of those things together? This is God's diagnosis of the human condition. What do we hear out in the world so often? People are basically good. Well, boys and girls, you take that statement that people say, people are basically good, and you put it up beside Titus 3, verse 3. And and you see who's telling the truth. God is telling the truth. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malice, envy, hate. That description of human nature far is a far better uh, explanation of what we see in human history, isn't it? Then man is basically good. If you look at all the trouble, all the misery, all the war, all the the trouble and strife, this explains it far better than man is basically good. And notice, I think just for this afternoon, what does Paul write? At one time, who? We, he says. Is this something that Paul is just speaking down on people from some high, elevated position and saying, it's you people, this is the way you were. He doesn't do that. Even Paul, who as Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, whose life looked so good on the outside, now, by God's grace, he knew the truth about who he was apart from the grace of God. He knew the truth about himself. And all of us, at one time, we too were these things. This is true of everybody born into the world. You know, and that is not only true and shows our need. It also helps very much with what Paul says, and we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but in verse 2 he says that Christians should show humility toward all people. This is what really will bring humility into your life. It's verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish. If you remember that. That will suffocate the kind of proud, looking down your nose kind of attitude that quote-unquote religious people are often accused of because they often do it. What helps Christians to be humble? Verse 3, at one time, we too were foolish. And, you know, this creeps into our lives. You, You can stand on a street corner with a sign during a life chain and think about people and the whole issue of abortion. And the thought can creep in, but I never did that. Or... Someone comes by and yells something, some obscenity out of the car at you, and you think, I would never do that. What kind of person is that who would have that kind of thinking and that kind of foul mouth? At one time, we too were foolish and disobedient. Now, Sometimes I hear people talk about people being holier than thou, Christians who are holier than thou. There is a sense where we should be holier than people around us. That's the third point this afternoon. There should be a, a moral superiority because we have God's revealed morality and because we should be living that out more and more. There should be a moral superiority in that sense, but never a proud Moral superiority. There's a huge difference between righteousness and self-righteousness. There is a difference in righteousness. Our lives are different and should be different. But we always have to come back to why. I prayed it in the prayer this afternoon at the Life Chain. Those words, I think it was by... George Whitfield, perhaps, when he was with someone else and they saw someone being marched toward the gallows where he was to be hanged for a crime. Maybe you remember the story. And Whitfield said, pointing to the man, there, but for the grace of God, go I. We too were foolish and disobedient. Compared to others, we may look okay, even much better than others, but we need to come back to this description of who we are in and of ourselves, born into this world. We were on holidays, and one place that we stayed this past summer had mounted in the bathroom one of the most magnifying mirrors that we had ever seen. It was a technological marvel. This thing I don't know if you've ever seen one of these mirrors. Maybe you have one at home. It has a light. You can turn on a light, and when you look into it, every wrinkle, spot, or blemish just was so evident and so clearly seen. It, you almost were frightened when you look into the mirror <gasps> because you just see it all so magnified. But you know, it's good for us, from Scripture, before God, spiritually, to have that kind of view. When we look into the mirror of the Word of God, God's law, God's character, or the life of Christ, and we compare ourselves, not foolishly like the Apostle Paul says of those who compare themselves with themselves... (laughs) so you just look around to people around you and you're just a little bit better than they are. But when you look into the mirror of God's law and God's holiness, then we see who we really are. To be realistic, we need to stand ultimately before the brilliant holiness of God. And then we see that Titus 3, verse 3, is true. I hope we're not, any of us here this afternoon, those who would deny our sin or deny our need to be saved. Jesus said that the doctor doesn't come for the well, those who think they're okay. That we wouldn't be those who reject the diagnosis because that's what Jesus is giving us here. He is the great physician. And before he heals, he brings people to an acknowledgment of the true and accurate diagnosis of their lives. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The history of the world, again, gives conclusive testimony, not to man's goodness, but to man's sin. The high point of human confidence in the Enlightenment, in humanism, was followed by the bloodiest century of war in human history, the 20th century. There was a French Protestant pastor named Adolphe Manot, and when he read Titus 3.3, he said that he once thought Paul's description of humanity to be greatly and lamentably exaggerated, a burst of religious rhetoric. But one biographer writes, Once he felt unable to submit to the awful witness, but as the years passed, seeing deeper into himself, seeing deeper into the holiness of God, the truthfulness of the passage grew upon him. I am sure, said Mano, that when this veil of flesh shall fall, I shall recognize in that passage the truest portrait ever painted of my natural heart. At one time, we too were foolish. We don't know how sinful we really are as sinners. Even as Christians, we don't. There's an old proverb that says, if you want to know what wet is, W-E-T, if you want to know what wet is, don't ask a fish. Have you ever heard that? If you want to understand what wet is, don't ask a fish. Because they can't tell you. They're in it all the time. They don't realize what being wet is because it's just their environment. It's all they know. You know, this this is one of the things that I think we need to appreciate. Being a sinner means we really don't fully appreciate what being a sinner is. Because it's all we've ever known. Have you ever thought of that? From conception, I have known sin. There has not been a moment of my life that I have not known it. And so I can't really fully appreciate it. But God does. And Jesus does. And the Holy Spirit does. And the Spirit can tell us. And he has. At one time, we too were foolish. You know, last week... Friday was the the day of truth and reconciliation. I don't want to get into a big debate about that, but I heard one native leader say last week of truth and reconciliation, quote, the one must come before the other. She said truth must come before reconciliation. That's true. It's true. And we need to see and believe the truth about ourselves, born into this world. Before we go any further, before we come to any kind of reconciliation with God, we need to understand that we are a people who needed to be saved. And the more we do, by God's grace, the more we will see that the good news is really good news. The God who is holy and perfectly just who must punish sin and sinners, of whom it says in Exodus, he will not leave the guilty unpunished, is also revealed in the Bible as the God of goodness and love and grace and mercy toward his people. And that's what we see, secondly, the God who saves Look again at your Bibles. At one time, we two were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. What's the next word? But. But. That is the intervention of something outside of ourselves, something outside of this world, something divine, something supernatural. This is all true. But, but, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, and it appeared preeminently in God, our Savior, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. That's what we should think when we think of Jesus, among many other things. We should look at him and say, kindness, kindness, And love. People can say all things, all kinds of things about him. They can take his name in vain. But this is what we should say kindness and love. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, what was the result? Look at verse 4. He saved us. Aren't those simple words, kids? He saved us. Even some of you young kids, I think if you have a piece of paper, you could probably spell it out. You know enough writing, you could probably write those three words. He saved us. Give it a try and you can show me after the service. He saved us. What a marvel of mercy and grace bridges those two pronouns. When you think of what's involved, He the holy God, and us, foolish, disobedient. What kind of marvel of grace and mercy bridges those two pronouns? What's the word saved? He saved us. This is good news. Good news because we were condemned in guilt and sin with no power ourselves to, to pay the debt that we owed as we considered this morning. And in verse 5, the word order in the original stresses our inability. The King James Version has it more in the order of the words. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. This is salvation by sovereign grace. This is God saving sinners by grace alone. You know, the Roman church at the time of the Reformation objected to Luther and the Reformers when they spoke of the great alones of the gospel, by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. But all those alones flow out of a passage like this because there is nothing that we could do for our own salvation. It was God alone, by grace alone. And therefore, in order to be by grace, it must be through faith alone. And that's what we see here, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. The Roman church said, Luther, you are adding that word alone, that we are justified by faith alone. You're adding to scripture, we are justified by faith. And then they included all kinds of other things. But surely, beloved, faith alone is the other side of the wording here, not by works of righteousness we have done. Faith alone just means not by our works of righteousness. It's the same thing, Romans 4, 5, however, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked or the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. We are a reformed church, a reformed Presbyterian church, Presbyterian in church government, reformed in theology, and that's an historical uh, term which points to the truths of the gospel rediscovered at the time of the Protestant Reformation, but found first in Scripture. Scripture alone. But sometimes we ask, well, what is this Reformed theology? Or people who know enough sometimes say, oh, that Reformed theology. And there's quite an antagonism to it. But if you're wondering what Reformed theology is all about, or if you're trying to speak to other people to explain what Reformed theology is all about, we should say, first of all, it attempts, it desires to be and strives to be biblical. But what is it? What is it all about? you open up your Bible with them to Titus 3, verse 5, and you read to them, He saved us. That's Reformed theology. It isn't some theology of man in whole or in part saving himself. It's He saved us. And if you believe that, that's Reformed theology. Do I even dare say that's Calvinism? But that's that's what it means. It means a lot more. But at the heart, that's what it means. He saved us. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy laws demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. It is the theology of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. That's what it is, because we were, verse 3, but God saved us. Salvation begins in a human life, according to the Bible, with God's choice in eternity, then being worked out with God's work in history. Where does salvation begin in time and space for someone? Well, it begins with the new birth, and that's what our passage teaches us. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's where every true, genuine, spiritual experience and exercise flows from in a human life we might not understand that when we first believe we just find ourselves believing but god is telling us here how someone comes to believe how is it it's in the mercy of god in the work of the holy spirit rebirth and renewal it's a new heart it's a clean heart it's a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone so what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Our salvation is attributable in its root and foundation to the love and kindness of God the Father. To the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit all focused on and based on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for the sake of Christ he purchased all these blessings for us. Verse 6, whom the Spirit poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Salvation is the work of the triune God in the life of a sinner. poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Well, again, who are the us? We know in a sense that in sin, we know who are the we. It's every human being ever born. But who are the us? Who are those who have experienced the mercy of God and the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Spirit through Jesus Christ, our Savior? Well, again, it's... It's the new birth, Galatians 6.15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. It's no outward religious work. What counts is a new creation. But how do you know if you have a new heart? How do you know that you're clean, that you're righteous, and justified in God's sight? Well, verse 7 speaks about being justified, declared innocent and acceptable to God. And the Bible says that justification is inseparably connected to faith. So that verse 7, having been justified by his grace, we might become oh, so that having been justified by his grace. If we're justified by his grace, the Bible connects that to the exercise of faith. Romans 5:1, therefore since we have been justified through faith. Not because of faith. Faith is not the basis of our justification. Jesus is. His blood and his righteousness but through the instrument of faith, faith which looks away from ourselves and looks to Jesus, being justified by grace alone, through faith alone, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how all these Reformation doctrines, biblical doctrines of salvation are here. Faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone. Not our good works, not our religious activities, not our baptism or church membership but faith alone flowing from a Holy Spirit-renewed heart. And it's out of a new heart that faith flows, along with repentance and the whole of the Christian life. And that's what we see third here, and just briefly, the life of someone who has been saved. Believers are here called to a carefully obedient life out of gratitude for having been saved, Titus 3.8. This is a trustworthy saying, the salvation of God. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. The original says here that they may be thoughtful. And so it means in your thinking... That you are someone who is constantly giving thought to good works. How can I live the way that God wants me to live? Out of gratitude for His salvation in my life. That you may be thoughtful. And then it uses a word which is very interesting. It means a word to be, that means to be in front of or to be leading to stand in front of or before others. It's used of elders in 1 Thessalonians 5.12 who stand before the congregation and the thought is as examples then to the flock. But this is how we are to think of ourselves. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trust in God may be careful, may be always thinking, to devote themselves. That we would want to see in our lives an example that we'd be exemplary in our good works. And Paul elsewhere, didn't he write to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on your young, but set an example to others in your life, in faith, and purity, and all those things. Someone who has truly been given a new heart is someone who is thinking, who had devoted ourselves to thinking, God, and praying, God, make my life exemplary. Not out of some kind of, Sinful pride so that we can walk around like the Pharisees did with their robes and pray so that they could be seen of men. But because we want to say thank you to God in the best way that we can. And God has told us what that way is. That those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. What is the place of good works? There it is. Not in order to be justified, but having been justified. We devote ourselves to good works. Verse 1 of chapter 3, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. What is good? Let me add it. Just eager, zealous to do what's good. To slander no one, verse 2 no one, to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility toward all men. That's how you say thank you to God. The grace of God that brings salvation, verse 11, has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We're eager to do what's good if we're born again and we're justified through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not perfect yet in this life. But we have a glorious hope, verse 7, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. A life where God will finish that work of sanctification in us. We are the sons of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. What an amazing compendium of gospel theology in these verses. A salvation for sinners who can't save themselves but who need to be saved. A salvation by God's grace alone, through the work of Christ alone, in the renewal and power and working of the sovereign grace of the Spirit of God alone, so that even the worst of sinners, faithful saying number one, will be welcomed into eternal glory. This is a faithful saying from our faithful God.